Governor Maura Healey, who so far has delivered only broad brushstrokes about her policy plans, is getting real this week with the unveiling of her first state budget. The budget will set out her priorities for the coming year, and everyone is watching to see where she puts the state's money. One key area of interest is tax policy. Governor Charlie Baker and the legislature last year came close to delivering a major tax reform package, but it never got done amid concerns about whether the state could afford it along with a $3 billion tax cap giveback. Healy supported many elements of the Baker plan and of late has talked about making Massachusetts more affordable and more competitive. She has talked up tax breaks for renters, seniors, and parents struggling with childcare and hinted at more initiatives as well. The state's business community is making a big push for tax reform, stressing the need to make the state more competitive from a tax perspective particularly after voters in November approved a new tax surcharge on income over $1 million. Some have suggested the state is on the verge of reclaiming the moniker of Taxachusetts. I'm Bruce Mole of Commonwealth Magazine, and I'm joined by two experts who have been following this tax debate closely, Doug Howgate, the president of the Massachusetts Taxpayers Foundation, and Evan Horowitz, the executive director of the Center for State Policy Analysis at Tufts University. Let's start with you, Doug. Your organization has proposed a $1.1 billion tax package. What's in it and why is it needed? Sure. So first of all, thanks so much for the invite, Bruce. Really appreciate it. And last week, MTF put out a bit of a lay of the land of where we're at on tax policy. And what we wanted to do was three things. So reorient people to where we were last year when the tax discussions gained broad consensus that were really centered on a cost crunch that families and low-income residents in Massachusetts were feeling and the idea that there were some pretty prominent outliers in our tax code that hurt our ability to attract and retain people, investment jobs. And so what we wanted to do is say, how have those factors changed since the last year? And I think what we see is the cost crunch has been exacerbated. And in light of the surtax, which is focused on a pretty narrow portion of the population, uh, several of those outliers are, I think, even more problematic from a tax code standpoint. And the good news is the fiscal state of the Commonwealth is even stronger than it was a year ago. And so what we recommended was uh, in increasing the state's child independent tax credit, um, piggybacking on proposals last year on the rental deduction and on the senior circuit breaker for property taxes, and also expanding the state's estate tax uh, uh, threshold to 5 million from the current one, making all capital gains tax rates the same at 5%. Currently, some tax capital gains are taxed at 12%. And also reducing taxes on businesses that pay their tax code, pay their uh, taxes through the income tax code. So that's what we propose. And I think what we believe is that the motivation for tax uh, tax change last year, those reasons are even stronger now. And I think we're able to afford making some really thoughtful changes to our tax code. And is it to make the state uh, retain people? Is that a part part of the reason? Yeah. So so I think that the, the lens we're trying to look at this issue and other policy issues is how do we make sure Massachusetts is a place that people who want to be here can afford to be here and that we can it attracts some new folks and investment into Massachusetts. And so I think you need to take a pretty holistic view of the tax code, as well as other policies, to make sure we're thinking about the childcare and housing costs that families are facing, but also thinking about the decisions that 
wealthier Massachusetts residents are thinking about when they make location decisions, and also how our tax code compares to states that we may want to compete with and other states that we, we do compete with, whether we like it or not. Evan, you've been studying this issue closely. Uh, what's your take on what the business community is proposing here? So, I mean, the way Doug lays it out, and first of all, I should also say, it's great to be here, Bruce. It's good to be here with you too, Doug. Uh, have a little conversation. I feel like it'd be nice if we could add some viewers to this, but maybe maybe next time we'll do that. Um, so, I mean, I'm not going to disagree with much of what Doug is suggesting. I think there are issues with the tax code that affect competitiveness. I think there is a, a concern about low-income folks in the state and what can be done to help them. Uh, housing costs are obviously a tremendous uh, impediment to people settling here. All these things are are real. And adjusting the tax code and generating some new or introducing some new tax breaks could address a lot of these issues. Uh, what strikes me, though, is the attention to two pieces of this that seem totally divorced from concerns about competitiveness um, that I'm hearing a lot from the business community. One of these is the estate tax. Uh, Doug mentioned that, raising the threshold for the estate tax. And the other is the, uh, the short-term capital gains increase. Um, there's a difference, I, I guess, Sometimes tax cuts that benefit wealthy people also are important for competitiveness. Sometimes they're not. They're just tax cuts that benefit wealthy people. And I feel like in those two cases, they really lean more towards the, no, these are just tax cuts that benefit wealthy people. And if we care about competitiveness, we really should be looking in other places. We should be looking at things that maybe we haven't done the groundwork for, but that would be much more meaningful um, in terms of impact on the ground. Doug, I'll let you... What's your take on those two particular taxes? Yeah, so, so I think one of the things that we focus on in the piece we published last week is let's, again, assess how our tax landscape has changed now versus a year ago, right? And and the, the reality is we've instituted the biggest tax increase in Massachusetts in more than 20 years, and it's a tax increase that narrowly focuses on a pretty small segment of the population, right? And depending on your perspective, that's perspective that's either a good thing or a bad thing, right? Mm -hmm. um, and so I think one of the things that we think is important to say, okay, we've made this big change to our tax code. Now let's take a step back and look at the other elements of our tax code that may make it more likely for these to factor into decisions for these folks and other Massachusetts residents. I'll come back to that in a second, so that they are able and want to stay in Massachusetts. That I think everyone's on the same page now that we want as many folks who are subject to the surtax to stay in Massachusetts as possible. Okay, let's start from that premise. Does having the most expansive estate tax in the nation, and it ain't even close, is that gonna help? Having the, the largest capital gains rate in the nation, uh, is that gonna help in addition, when we think about it in the context of the surtax? And I think the answer is pretty clear. The other thing I would just take a step back and think I don't, about. I don't think, for the record, I don't think the answer is pretty clear, but I'll let Doug finish. Fair enough. But the other thing I would take a step back and think about is on the estate tax, right? So the estate tax covers a wide range of Massachusetts uh, families, right? And when you think about what changing the estate tax for the first time in 20 years does, one of the things that take keeps in mind is the fact that between 2016 and 2020, the number of estates captured by the estate tax increased by 30%. Right. At the same time, housing prices in Massachusetts went up by 30 percent. There's probably a pretty close connection between those two things. And so when you think about how the estate tax is calculated, does it make sense that we haven't adjusted the thresholds in more than 20 years while real estate values in Massachusetts has tre have trebled during that time? I don't think it really makes sense. Right. And when you look at the capital gains rate, 
This was a rate structure on short-term capital gains at 12% that was actually put in place as part of a capital gains tax cut in the mid-90s. And then we undid the cut part and kept in place the short-term capital gains piece. And so I think what we're arguing is it's time to look at the, our tax code holistically here and say, okay, we've now got this third tax. Are these other outlier elements of our tax code helping us achieve what we want to achieve? And, and we would argue the answer is no. Evan? Well, I think there are a couple of kind of misnomers here or important things to clarify. There is a sense, yes, the millionaire's tax affects a very small minority of people. We estimate about 0.6% of households in the state in our analysis of it. And those people are overwhelmingly wealthy. They earn, by definition, over a million dollars in the year that they pay this tax. And it's also true that the estate tax affects a very small number of people. Um, and they happen to be very wealthy. But they're not the same people, right? It's not like, oh, we're raising taxes on a small, wealthy group. We're, therefore, we should maybe keep them here, cut taxes, a different tax on a small wealthy group. They're they're quite distinct, these two groups. The people who are subject to the millionaire's tax tend to, at least, well, a lot of the people subject to the millionaire's tax tend to be younger. They tend to be people in their earning prime, right? And we do want to keep those people. There is a competitiveness concern around the millionaire's tax, a very real competitiveness concern. We want to keep those people in the state because they're running businesses, because they're producing jobs. That is important. And that's where a lot of their money is coming from. The people who pay the estate tax are dead. Um, at, that's very different. But obviously, that's not really what we're concerned about. What we're concerned about is people who might move in anticipation of paying the estate tax. But even those people are much, much older. And it's affecting a group of people who may have passive income, um, but they've built up wealth over time. They're no longer, for the most part, running businesses. They're no longer creating jobs. It's less important to keep those people in the state. They're different groups of people, and we should have different tax priorities around this. If you care about competitiveness, and I do, and if you care about keeping people in the state, it seems to me you want to do a different set of things. I mean, holistic a holistic look at the tax code is, is right. That is the right approach. Um, but there's still a right way to do holistic intervention and a way that is liable to misfire. Can, can I jump in there for one second, Bruce? Because I do think that maybe we're, we're, we're talking past each other a little bit. When we, the, the tax recommendations that we're talking about, absolutely a huge element of that is making sure we're trying to keep people here and attract people here. But you can, we have more than one goal, I think, in some of these, right? And one of the goals I think we also have for the estate tax, which I talked about before, is does it make sense that we haven't adjusted this estate tax in 20 plus years? It is capturing a far larger swath of families in Massachusetts than it did 20 years ago, solely because as that threshold has remained static, the costs that generally can contribute to the wealth that would lead to paying the estate tax have fundamentally changed. And so when you think about uh, families in areas of the state where real estate values have appreciated considerably, I think it makes sense to go back and say, you know what, the million dollar threshold that may, may have made sense in 2001, I'm not sure that makes sense in 2023. And so well, I, totally, I totally agree so, with, with Doug on this point. Um, sorry, you want to finish? So what I was going to say is just, as we lay out kind of a constellation of tax goals, right? I think it's appropriate for them to solve for some different problems that hopefully complement each other. One of which is absolutely attracting or retaining folks. One of which I think is also, again, looking at our tax code and saying what needs to be adjusted because it is no longer in line with the economic reality in Massachusetts. And that's a principle, I, as I say, I would totally embrace. I just don't think it involves raising the threshold from a million dollars to $5 million, right? That's not keeping up with anything. That's uh, creating a whole new threshold and really narrowing. So if, you know, we did a, we did a piece when, uh, Bruce, as you mentioned in the intro, a lot of these were discussed as part of a potential tax cut package last fall. We did a piece then, 
and we didn't endorse because we don't endorse or oppose things, you know, uh, as a, as the center. Um, but we basically came out to say it is not unreasonable to raise the threshold there are, for the estate tax. There are lots of problems with the way that tax is structured. It should be restructured. Um, but five million dollars is is not it, it, it sort of picked out of thin air from a restructuring argument. It's it's well, yeah. and I would agree with that. It, it's not keeping up with anything because it would still be far lower than Connecticut lower than Maine, far lower than New York of the, and those are uh, most of the states of the 12 states that have it. And so when you think about the same kind of thought process that other states that are similar to us or different than us have gone through, I do think it's interesting that when you, you're, you, we're not talking about Texas and uh, you know uh, Nevada here, we're talking about Connecticut, New Jersey, uh, Maine, Vermont. But Doug, Doug, they have higher rates. They have a different rate table. Like, it's not just the threshold. You have to look at the mix of the how much money is being generated. So I think a $5 million threshold makes sense if you adjust the rate table to make it more or less revenue neutral or increase revenue. I don't hear anybody talking about that. I mean, is that, is that what you're suggesting? If we, wanna, if we wanna make the $5 million threshold and take the rate table from one of those states, um, yeah, I'm open to that. That seems like a reasonable approach, but I, that's not what I'm hearing. Uh, let, me, let me interject here for just a second. Um, so it seems like, um, you can debate whether a tax should be changed or modified or what have you. But a lot of this, particularly in regard to these taxes that affect wealthy people, I, I have a sense from reading the press right lately about this debate that it's a lot about sending a message that uh, Massachusetts is not steering back toward a high tax, a Taxachusetts type state. Uh, so it's 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 a bit practical. It's a bit you know where we differ and everything, as you point out, Doug. But it's also PR. It's trying to send a message out. It seems like, and are I guess I'd like to turn this a little bit different. Are we headed? If you, Doug, are you worried that we're headed toward you know, re, you know restoring the Taxachusetts label? I think perception matters in this regard, right? I think it matters in terms of. When people think of Massachusetts, what do they think about? Did they think of kind of the gangbusters economy from the last 20 years, where this has been a really hot place for people to move to and want to be? Or is it seen as, oh, this is a state that's hemorrhaging people and is instituting tax policies that are going to potentially accelerate that? Now, measuring that and what that means in terms of location decisions, that's always going to be really tough. But I think the perception element here really matters. And having put in place a new tax that started in January, again, keeping in mind that there are elements of our tax code that really don't make a whole lot of sense in light of that new tax, making those adjustments, I'm not sure that's going to totally undo any perception issues. And again, we're going to probably uh, have different opinions about how you even measure that perception. But I will say when the tax foundation and groups like that come out with their rankings, you're going to see Massachusetts again at kind of the bottom of the barrel in terms of tax competitiveness. And we can argue about, is that the right measure? Or how do you look at that? But I think knowing that people read those things and that's going to be cited in every article you see about Massachusetts ranked as the least business friendly or this, that, or the other thing. And I think we do need to be mindful of that as we make tax changes and, and adjust the tax code. So I couldn't agree more. I, I, I too, I, I'm worried, not just about the perception, but about the reality of the state's competitiveness in the new tax regime. But I think that's precisely why I don't want to waste dollars on tax cuts that aren't maximally effective at either altering that perception, but also altering the facts on the ground. So I, I want to, if we're going to spend dollars on tax cuts, it should be for things that do increase competitiveness, not things that keep, you know, 70 year olds from leaving the state, right? That's different. Um, so I think if we were talking about single sales factor, 
which is, you know, gets technical, but like is a real competitive issue, Doug and I would just be singing the same tune. Uh, and there are other changes like that where I would be on board because precisely because I am concerned about the long-term competitive and economic health of the state. And I want to make sure that we're doing things to address those concerns in a real way, rather than just grabbing things that are handy and that are attractive to people who run businesses, even if they're not actually important to the business environment. Well, and I would just say to that, because I'm sure that everyone uh, was laser focused on page 13 of the report that we released last week, but in case any, it slipped anyone's mind, one of the points we make is that the, our initial look at this was focusing on income and estate taxes, right? Because of where the proposals were last year, we wanted to start with that footprint, but agree totally with Evan that we absolutely need to look at the corporate and other side of the ledger to figure out how we enhance our competitiveness. So uh, we would kind of yes and some of those comments, but we think that the income and estate tax elements of it are an important component as well. So let me uh, see if you guys are as much in the dark as I am. Um, so Maura Healy, as I said in the opening, it's sort of talked in broad brushstrokes about what she wants to do, not very many specifics as of yet. And on this issue, um, it's particularly confusing. She's, I think she's, you know, as I said, looking to help renters, looking to help seniors, looking to help parents dealing with childcare. But then she also mentions competitiveness and other things that she, she wants people to want to be here, want to grow here, all that sort of stuff. So here's this Democrat. What's she likely to do? What what first off, do you know? And what's your guess that she'll do? Doug, you can why don't you lead off? What do you think she'll do? So first of all, I do not know. Um, but I'm very excited to see what uh, the Healy administration proposes next week. Um, it's clear that her team has been focused on tax issues. Um, and again, I think we start from a strong place in that there was broad consensus last year. And so when you think about what may be different. She's the, now it's important to note that the um, proposals last year included an expansion of the state's child and dependent tax credit. She's proposed going even further. And that's something that we really like. And, and we've talked about it in the piece we wrote last week um, in terms of new things or kind of introducing new tax provisions. I don't know, but I think that her administration has spoken quite a bit about how do we make sure that the people who are here can afford it and people who aren't here might want to come here? And so I think that lens, applying that to tax policies, is going to lead to some interesting outcomes. And so excited to see what they propose. Devin? I love it that Doug said he didn't know. That's exactly what you would say if you didn't know and weren't allowed to tell. So I assume that's what, what he meant. <laughs> um, no, I also don't know. But the, I mean, the things I'm looking at to get a sense of which way they're going are the things we're talking about, right? I assume now based on nothing, um, that there will be some change to the estate tax in this. And my, what I'm watching is, does it follow the contours of what was in the package, last year's package, which you know did raise the threshold, but not nearly to the level that, that, that Doug's talking about here, which is kind of $2 million level. Um, is it like that or is it the $5 million level? And with what, so that, that would be a sign of where they're going, right? Uh, and is the short-term capital gains change there? That was not in the package last year. The governor had proposed it, but it didn't make it to the legislative package. Is that back in? If that's in, I, frankly, I will be surprised um, if it's in, but that would be really telling. So the things we're talking about are the things sort of on the fence, uh, I think, which will show us uh, which way the administration is leaning and how they're thinking about their relationship to the economy and to the business community. And let me veer off in a, a little bit of a tangent here at the end, because one other thing I'm sort of fascinated with uh, in this budget, I'm assuming we'll we'll sort of get a sense of where the Healy administration wants to do it. 
is that millionaire tax that we talked about, the money's going to start to flow in. And so the question, a lot of people are just sort of, what, how's this going to work? Um, and I know mass taxpayers uh, maybe a month or two ago had proposed the money come in and be split equally into educate for education and transportation. But um, it was a little unclear to me. So the money would go to separate places. And then how, how will it be apportioned? How will it be handed out? I wondered if you folks have any sense of a, a way that would do that and provide transparency about how is this new money? Is it going to something we want? Or is there some funny business going on in the background? Evan, you want to go first? Yeah, but my answer is quick and short. It's all funny business. Um, I know people care about the top line thing, but I don't think this is a question you can answer with accounting. Like, you know, I saw this morning that the Healy, there's some announcement from the Healy administration that they're going to fully fund the Student Opportunity Act, right? Now, um, is that possible because there's millionaires tax dollars? Is, is, is some of that going to be millionaires tax dollars? Would it have been fully funded otherwise? It was supposed to be fully funded otherwise. Um, might that money have gone somewhere else in the absence of a millionaire's tax? This is an education thing. Uh, that's just not something we will ever really be able to know. Uh, it's like this for a lot of accounts, you know, millionaire tax dollars might go into that account, but you'll never know like what other dollars might have gone into that account in the absence of those millionaires tax dollars. So there's all these counterfactuals. And I think in the long term, actually figuring out where this money is going is going to require like really sophisticated statistical analysis in comparison to other states and long-term trends and stuff. Um, and so the question of sort of on the accounting side, should we put 50% this way and 50% that way? Um, it's, it's kind of a distraction. Uh, that's my take. It's kind of a distraction. And the real work is all happening in the funny business behind the scenes. So um, I would uh, have a slightly different opinion than Evan. I would agree totally that we cannot know what would have happened had the millionaire's tax not occurred, right? Absolutely. There's a level of, of counterfactual there that we can never know. But I think that the good news is we can start small, right? So one, can we take the millionaire's tax money and put it in a separate fund from the general fund? Yes, absolutely. That's easily done. Can we then, in the budget, identify where millionaire's tax dollars are being used? You can do that. Now, again, as Evan points out, you can say, well, what would have happened had they not existed? Would we have used other money to do that? That's a valid point. But in terms of the providing transparency and clarity to policymakers, the public, everyone else initially, you absolutely can say, okay, the money's going into a fund. And then when we spend $5 of it on program X, we're going to identify that we're spending $5 of it on program X. And there's kind of a couple ways the budget does that already, right? So gas tax revenue is constitutionally obligated for transportation purposes. And so what you'll see in the budget, if you look really, really, really close, is a thing called a fund split where line items that use gas tax revenues will have a little percentage that say certain percentage is coming from the Commonwealth Transportation Fund. So again, does that get to kind of what might have been had of this tax not happened and what our decision tree would have been then? No, it doesn't get to that. But you can absolutely provide the public with some sense of here's where the money is and then here's how we're using those resources in the context of this budget. And my expectation is we'll see something like that from the Healy administration. We put out one proposal of how to do that. I think the, the, the fundamentals of it, separating the money, identifying where you're saying it's being used, Absolutely, people can play games with that, and it's going to require analysis. But I think that fundamental building block is critical to at least allow those conversations to happen. Evan, you got any? I, I, I sort of, as a reporter, I sort of like the idea of at least seeing where it goes into the system. Uh, I, you... I, I get that, and I think it's really tempting to look at it that way. And Doug's right; that's exactly what's going to happen. The building blocks he talks about are going to be put in place, and they're very simple. 
And I think my point is just like, they're not actually telling you what you, what you think they're telling you. And they're going to just be misread forever um, because it's tantalizing. Uh, you know, that, that's just, that's the path we're going down. I see. All right. And, the, and, and it couldn't have been different, right? That, that was inevitable. A dollar is a dollar is a dollar. That dollar coming from the millionaire's tax looks just like the dollar coming through the estate tax, looks just like the dollar coming from the capital gains tax. Like they're all dollars. And you can swap them and nobody really knows which dollar came from which place at the end of the day. Um, and that, you know, this was part of the argument against the millionaire's tax to begin with uh, from folks, you know, uh, from, from folks in the, in, you know, the world in which, in the business world in which Doug circulates, for instance, that you couldn't trust that the money would really be used for these things. And that was always true and still true. And I guess I would just say, absolutely, there are going to be challenges with assessing the use of these funds over time. And that, and that, and that was most certainly a, a strong concern that was raised. All we can do is figure out how to operationalize that in this budget to at least hopefully provide some clarity. And, and I think there are ways to do that. Um, and, hey, money's fungible, but at least as, if we can all agree that is that dividing the millionaire's tax 50-50 and then uh, using significant resources for meaningful tax reform is the way to a better Massachusetts, I think we can call it a day. All right, with that, we'll, we'll all have to wait and see what the governor actually proposes. And I want to thank Doug Howgate, the president of the Massachusetts Taxpayers Foundation, and Evan Horowitz, the executive director of the Center for State Policy Analysis at Tufts University for joining me. And to our listeners, we'll see you again next week after the governor's budget is released. Thanks.